Welcome to Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. Find answers to your toughest questions and get educated about the financial world. It's time to retire smarter. Another edition of Retire Smarter on deck. Walter Storholt here alongside Kevin Krosky. He's the president and wealth advisor at True Wealth Design, serving you throughout Northeast Ohio. He's got offices in Akron and Canfield and a fantastic team around them. You can find out all about the team online at truewealthdesign.com. That's truewealthdesign.com. Kevin, great to talk with you this week. Ready for another podcast? I am, Walter. We are, we're we're going to look into the crystal ball on this one and talk about expected <laughs> investment returns over the coming, say, 10 years or so. Oh, I thought it was a magic eight ball, not a crystal ball. Maybe that's a that was my generation was the magic eight ball. Yeah, I don't know what to say. I have a bald head, and sometimes I'll just look in the mirror and try to <laughs> rub it and see if a genie appears, but that doesn't work. Either. My yeah. daughter, actually, she doesn't say, my five-year-old doesn't say bald. She says bulb. She thinks I have a bulb, B-U-L-B, which I take as a compliment because it thinks of a light bulb and an idea generator. So that's, <laughs> there we go. I used to uh, actually interview on a local radio station down on the uh, coast of North Carolina, the president of the bald-headed men of America. Um, <laughs> I don't know what we talked about, but uh, I don't know why he would ever come into the radio station. I think he was involved in a lot of, he was a great guy, involved in a lot of local charities, and he was a good dude. And so I think that he was just maybe involved in, I just had no idea that that organization existed, but there are many out there. So you're not alone in your in your bulbness. <laughs> no, I had a, a good college buddy of mine who we give each other uh, some razzes over time, but uh, I was on Facebook uh, a couple weeks ago and shared a post and tagged him that said bald men are, are more confident and sexier in the eyes of women. And <laughs> he said, you posted that like three years ago. And I said, no, I didn't. So he actually took the time to go back. And sure enough, I, I did share that with him and tagged him in it three years prior. So. I don't know. Uh, hey, act as if, right? That's right. That's right. Well, you're owning it. And so that's the key. And with any trend, with any style, right? It's just, you just own it, you know, and walk around with confidence and people will think it's pretty cool. So there you, go. you pull that off well. Uh, well. We're not talking just about baldness on today's program. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank goodness. We're going to talk about something maybe a little bit more important than that. Maybe not as interesting. I don't know. It depends on your tastes, I suppose. Uh, we're talking about long-term items on today's show. So, you know, you're probably here at the beginning of the year, you know, in the first couple of months, you're always hearing a lot of stuff being talked about. What's going to happen this year? What's 2019 going to look like? What are things going to look like two, three, four, five months from now? But I know that you feel, Kevin, that a lot of the times, especially when we're talking investments and financials, that that's not really the way that you should be viewing these items. It should be a much longer term view. Well, I mean, if we could predict what was going to happen in the investment markets in the short term, I'd certainly love to do so. But you know, making short-term predictions is more akin to flipping a coin. A lot of people do it. I think a lot of people that do it know that it really has no expectation of yielding something useful, but they make the predictions anyway. If they're right, they look like a genius. And if they're wrong, they hope nobody notices. But the evidence on making these short-term predictions is pretty terrible. So, But what we're going to talk about are you call it long term, but you know, basically about 10 years. So if that's long to you, then, then we'll call it long. But it's certainly longer than one year. And the reason why what we're doing here specifically, I should mention this briefly, I'm referencing an article throughout the podcast that was published to Morningstar by an author named Christine Benz. She actually is a pretty good financial author. And I'm actually going to be quoting 
some of the information from her public article. And the reason why I do that is as an author, as a writer, she's not regulated under the Securities and Exchange Commission and I am. And so if I start talking about some of this information, somebody could misconstrue it as investment advice. And so I'm going to use a back door here and talk about this in a meaningful way. But thank you, Christine Benz, for lending your work to me. So the crux of the article is, again, this long-term focus on stock and bond returns. And that's got to be one of the most common things that you get asked about, Kevin, is, you know, how can I get the biggest return for my money? There's so much focus on that part of the equation. Well, I don't know if uh, there's a lot of focus on it, but here's why it's important. Let me put it this way. So when we're doing a retirement plan for somebody, we're doing a financial plan, you have to make an assumption on what the investment return is going to be. And the first thing that we want to do is as we go through a client's financial plan and construct it, you know, we're really measuring what it costs to live their lifestyle. We're factoring in how that spending is likely to change over time as they age, going through the go-go, slow-go, and no-go years. Uh, and then you know, we're looking at Social Security and pensions and other income streams that they may have and making sure that we're making smart decisions to try to optimize those. But then anything that's not being met from those income sources, the investments and savings have to do the rest of the work. And so we measure how much work that they have to do. Quantitatively, we'll back into a number and say, okay, we need you know, whatever level of return your plan needs. But then we have to go out into reality because we just can't you know, throw pixie dust and get you that return. Returns are relative. They change over time. You go back, you know, 35 years ago and interest rates were in the double digits. Well, that's not where we're at today. And stocks have been doing, at least up until a few months ago, particularly in the U.S., they've been going on a, a gangbuster tear since 2009. But, you know, really, what can we expect going forward? Past is not necessarily prologue, and in any sort of investment advertisement, you always see past performance is not indicative of future results. So you see that, but that's the thing that people go to first and foremost. They'll often use past performance or use some sort of track record, whether they're selecting mutual funds or something like that, to go ahead and use. But we more smartly need to use expected returns and not necessarily just past returns. And that's going to go ahead and factor in you know, whether you can retire how much you can spend. It's certainly going to factor in how your portfolio should be constructed. And if I use the word allocation throughout the call today, it's basically just the recipe, you know, the underlying investments that you have, the mutual funds and what have you are the ingredients, but then you need to combine the ingredients into a recipe and that's our asset allocation. So these expected returns are really beneficial for, you know, planning purposes. If you go ahead and change that expected return a little bit one way or the other, it's going to have quite a substantial impact on most people's plans because a small difference in return compounded over many, many years equals really, really big dollar differences. So we're not going to get you know any sort of exact expected return when we're talking about these forecasts. But what I want to do today is use Ms. Ben's article to go ahead and talk about expectations, talk about what we should be using in our plan, talk about what we should be using to go ahead and influence our recipe or our investment allocation. So if we go to the first one, and she just provides about a handful or so of large investment companies, and I'm actually going to start with John Bogle, who actually, we're recording this, just passed away about a week ago. Yeah. Yeah. So the, basically, I want to say the father of indexing. There was actually index funds that were created before he started Vanguard, but he started Vanguard and really was kind of the prime mover behind that movement and behind the lower cost. So he's quite an amazing individual. And so out of a little bit of honor, 
shown his way. I'll start with uh, with his prediction. So he made this prediction in October 2018, I'm assuming uh, for her article. And so the highlights of the conversation that Bogle had with Christine Benz was four to five percent returns for stocks and four percent returns for bonds over the next decade. So four to five percent for stocks and four percent for bonds over the next decade. Now. How he gets there, I think, is instructive because his model is pretty simple, but it's also pretty accurate. And all the other ones that we're going to talk about basically are similar to this, but they'll maybe have a little bit more flair to it. So whenever you're investing, you have returns from income. Say if you have a bond, it's paying you interest, or if you own a stock and it's paying you a dividend. Not all stocks pay dividends, but you know, in the case if you don't have a dividend-paying stock, then all of your return is going to come from the capital appreciation, the growth in the stock price. So you're always going to have the total return is the income plus any growth and growth can be positive or negative. So what is really easily observable is the current dividend yield. So if you look at just the S&P 500, for example, it's about 2% and it's been about 2% for quite some time. I think it got down to a low of maybe 1.8% in 2018, but with the sell-off we've had over the last couple months, it's now back up to about 2%. So that's about 2% of the return. And then you have earnings growth. So companies go out, they do their thing, they're making investments, they're doing business, and they're gonna have earnings. So if you think of just kind of the simple math behind this, you have revenue coming in, minus expenses, and then you're gonna get your earnings. It's a very simplified model, but you're gonna have earnings. And really it's the earnings growth. So kind of year over year growth that you're gonna have. And he says, well, that's gonna be in the range of about 5%. So two plus five is seven. And seven does not equal four or five, right, Walter? No, not quite. Okay, so the way that he gets back to the four or five is saying, hey, the stock market is historically pretty expensive and it's been that way for some time. But basically what he says is that there's gonna be a valuation contraction and kind of going back in the market being less expensive. So he says that that's probably gonna subtract out about two or 3%. And that's where he gets at four or 5% for stocks. So one other thing I mentioned, and this is important, it gets a little bit down the rabbit hole, but it, again, it's worth mentioning at least on some of a high level. We have the yield, 2%. We have earnings growth. And that tends to be highly volatile, as is the valuation component. So those are the earnings yield is pretty easy. The earnings growth can vary substantially. The valuation or the price somebody's willing to pay for a dollar of earnings or what have you very highly. So we got some part of this expected return equation that is, you know, easily forecasted, if you will, and other parts that, that can vary a good bit. So that's why you always kind of got, you know, a ballpark of a forecast that we're playing in here. But one of the things that I like about Christine Benz's article is a lot of these companies uh, that we'll talk about will often make forecasts with a decimal point. So something like say 4.2 or 4.7. <laughs> and that's how you know somebody has a good sense of humor because <laughs> forecasting return certainly is not that precise. And so using round numbers tends to kind of convey that and, and show a little bit of humility in doing this. But Jack Bogle, uh, John Bogle, he went by Jack is saying that the U.S. stock market is going to do 4 or 5 and bonds are going to do about 4%. He didn't comment on international securities, but 
How does that strike you, Walter? I mean, four to five percent for stocks and four percent for bonds. I mean, seeing my recency bias feels like that's good because we've had so much growth already over the last decade, or well, not even the last decade, over the last what two years, but have also had a lot of volatility just recently. So my recency bias kind of says, okay, I'm good with four to five percent, but that does seem to be. And check me, please fact check me on this, but that does seem to be below the average 10-year return in the market, right? Oh, substantially lower. I mean, if yeah. we go back, and I'll point of clarification, usually when we say recency bias, what that means is somebody thinks what's happened in the recent past, they can go ahead and and just project that going forward. So in your case, you're actually, you're not falling subject to recency bias and saying, hey, we're just going to keep getting these high returns. You know, times are good. There's no end in sight. Future's so bright, I, you know, I better wear shades sort of thing. So what he is saying is that, hey, you know, we can't keep growing at the rate we've been. Stocks, you know, were low 10 years ago. They've appreciated substantially and gotten a lot more expensive. So we we really need to kind of have a cooling off period. A good example of this is if you go back into the 90s and when the tech bubble was going, you know, it was like 20% returns every year. You know, you could just, you know, pretty much buy anything. And if you bought something with a technology fund or something like that in the name, then the returns were even higher. But the market got so expensive that if you were just investing in the S&P 500 at the start of 2000 and held on for an entire 10 years, you actually lost money over the entire decade investing in the S&P 500 from 2000 through the end of 2009, which would constitute 10 years. And a lot of people forget that. A lot of our clients come to us in their mid-50s or so when they really start getting serious about retirement planning. Sooner the better, but that tends to be what, what usually happens. And yeah, they were certainly working and investing over that time period, but they didn't have much money invested. And so frankly, they weren't paying all that close of attention to it. And so, you know, a lot of people forget that. And because we're US-based investors and because the US market has done so well over the recent past since 2009, it just looks like, hey, let's this is the place to be. Let's keep doing it. But again, that example of the tech bubble and going through the 2000s, literally, you lost money investing in stocks over an entire decade if you invest in the S&P 500. If you had a more diversified mix, and again, I won't kind of get into all the you know the composition of that, but you know maybe your money would have doubled or what have you. So diversification is key. Just investing in something that has done really well recently is generally not a good investment strategy. It certainly has been. More recently, but as Wayne Gretzky said, uh, you want to skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it was. So Ooh, like Jack that. Bogle is, yeah, Jack Bogle is saying about, you know, if you just break it up, you know, if you're getting, say, 4% for stocks and 4% for bonds, and you got some sort of any combination of those two, you're, you're getting a 4% return on your portfolio. So, so if that's all that you need, and maybe inflation is going to be 2%, so maybe your return after inflation is only going to be 4 minus 2 or 2 if that's what your financial plan needs, then that's okay. If your financial plan needs something a lot more than that, then that may not be okay. And you really will have to crunch the numbers about, hey, what do you really need? And what you need, is that really realistic? So we got Jack Bogle and we'll go there. We'll go to someone else who is a lot rosier next. And who we're going to go to next is BlackRock. BlackRock I think is the largest investment manager in the country. They have all kinds of different investment products that they manufacture from exchange traded funds to mutual funds. They own several different mutual fund companies. I think it's like $3 trillion or something that they have. And so they have a research department and they have some of their own funds and they have other funds as well, but they'll go ahead and make these return expectations. And what their highlights are per Christine Benz is, hey, over the next 10 years, and this is as of the end of December, 2018, 
you can expect 7% from US big company stocks. And outside of the US, if you go international, you can expect about 9%. And for US bonds, you're, now they do have a sense of humor here because they're seeing 3.3. <laughs> so let me repeat those numbers one more time. 7% for US stocks, so about 2 or 3% higher than what Jack Bogle was saying. But they're saying that international markets, you should expect more at about 9% per year over the next 10 years. So if you were just to go ahead and say combine those two, and let's just use you know U.S. returns, for example, um, the 7%. So say I got 50% of my portfolio in U.S. stocks. So there's 7%. I'll just use 3% on bonds, even though they said 3.3. I'll just round down to show some humility. So we get three and a half from 50% of a stock portfolio, seven divided by two is three and a half. And we get one and a half percent from bonds, again, 3% expected divided by two because it's half the portfolio. And we come up with an overall return of around five. So not too dissimilar from what Bogle was saying for a balanced portfolio, but they're saying that you can actually expect a lot more from US stocks. And, and Christine actually does comment that their forecasts are much much more so on the higher side compared to other firms that they picked out. So that's some good news. Uh, if they're right, you know, who knows? But one of the things that's important whenever we're looking at this is not only the returns, but now if we're getting into kind of assembling our recipe, you know, say, hey, you know, how much do I want in US stocks or foreign stocks? Not getting down into the ingredient selection, but just looking at a recipe. Well, what's really important is that you, if you can get the ranking right, say over the next five or 10 years or whatever time period we're trying to optimize for, then you're going to end up with the right portfolio. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say that BlackRock's example here is correct. Say it is 9% for, for outside of the US, you know, big companies. So international developed large cap companies. And the US does come in at seven. You know, so if I favored foreign markets compared to the US, I'm going to have a better recipe because I'm going to have higher returns than if I were just a US-based investor. And you can take this even down the rabbit hole even further to say, well, you know, what about, you know, we talked about big companies. What about small companies? Are they going to expect to do a little bit more or less? And then you could even look at, say, a style component where you have growth companies, more technology companies, healthcare, what have you, or maybe stodgier value companies. So the returns could be disparate between those two as well. And really, this is the process that we go through whenever we're constructing the recipes for our clients for their portfolios. We're looking at, say, hey, what really has the best risk and return trade-offs? But then when you combine things, you really want things to move in a dissimilar fashion. So when you look at the overall portfolio as a whole, you're getting a smoother ride you know and higher compounded returns over time at least that's the whole gist of going through that portfolio construction process but if you get that ranking right you're going to end up with the right portfolio regardless of whether it's nine percent for you know non-us large caps and seven percent for us or whether it's you know maybe it's six percent for non-us large caps and four so as long as you get the ranking right you're still going to end up with the right portfolio and that's important to remember and i don't think a lot of people view it with that lens it's just mostly that focus on you know, as a whole, market up or market down, you don't realize that there's kind of some inside baseball to be played or some analytics to kind of go into making a more sophisticated portfolio or, as you said, a, a sophisticated 
allocation there. So it's kind of interesting to see that there's different ways to kind of put together a plan and take advantage of some of these prognostications. And it's interesting to read in this article, these different major players in the industry predicting different things. And it looks just kind of bouncing around to a few of these other predictions. And I'm not going to try and steal any of your thunder here, Kevin, but it looks like not everyone is maybe as rosy as, you know, Bogle and uh, BlackRock were. No. Yeah. <laughs> Good segue. So I'll, I'll comment. Um, in, we'll link to this in the show notes if somebody wants to go ahead and read this. But I can say that some of these sources that Christine Benz uses here are some of the same sources that we use when we go through our process and put together portfolios for our clients. So it was another reason why I referenced this article. But JP Morgan, which you know everybody's heard of, so Chase Bank, what they say is 5.25% for US, so more in line with BOWO than BlackRock. And they say about 4.5% for US investment grade corporate bonds. And then one other thing to throw in another wrinkle here is they say that if you look over the next you know 10 years or so, they're expecting about 8.5% for emerging market equities. So a little bit more than 3% more per year say over 10 years, you compound that, then that's going to be somewhere north of a 30, 35% cumulative return increase for emerging markets on expected basis compared to the US. I went over that pretty quickly, but you know these numbers, again, if we're talking about 8.5 versus 5.25, 3.25% difference per year, but they're making this forecast over 10 years. And so if you compound that over all these years, then it's going to be something more than, say, 3.25 times 10 because of the compounding factor. So it could be a big dollar difference. I mean, if you had $100,000 in U.S. equities versus emerging markets and their forecasts actually come to fruition, we're talking about real dollar differences on the order of probably about $35,000 or $40,000. So one of the things when you look at these is the ranking is very similar. And frankly, it's been pretty similar between all of these forecasts for quite some time. And that ranking has generally been people are expecting emerging markets to do the best in large part because they've done the poorest over the prior period. And said another way, their valuations are attractive because they've been such a stinky investment over the last 10 years. Then outside of the US, international developed countries like Japan, Europe, even Canada, you know, our friends up north or outside of the US. So they're in that international developed bucket. They've also, the returns have been kind of lackluster, not as bad as emerging markets, but certainly not as good as US. US has really been kind of the darling, the place to be for the last 10 years or so. And then then the US equities are, are last in literally all three of these, uh, excuse me, um, there's more than three that are in this article, but the three that I highlighted and even more. So there is somebody that's out there that is even more pessimistic on return assumptions and says that the valuations need to kind of snap back even more to get back into kind of in alignment with historical norms and what have you. But I don't want to, I don't want to scare anybody on the podcast. They can go read it if they want to read what GMO thinks. But what's interesting is here we are in early 2019. Emerging markets did really well in 2017. They did not do well at all in 2018. And if I go back and if I look at these historical forecasts from all these companies over the last several years, this ranking has been pretty consistent. But in general, the US on average has still been a better place to be. And it's been weird. The US returns have really been uh, into these FANG stocks, the technology stocks, the Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. That's reversed in a big way over the last couple of months as we went through some downside market volatility recently. But the point that I bring this up for is that you know these are long-term forecasts. Going through these different methods that these companies are going through to make these forecasts over 10 years, 
you're going to have an explanatory power of about 70%. I said another way, they're going to get it at about 70, maybe 80% right. There's still going to be a decent band where, you know, the actual returns are going to fall outside of what, you know, their ballpark was. But in the short term, making these sort of forecasts over a year is really akin to a coin flip. And even though clients may feel like, hey, a year is long or two years or three years is long, there's a lot of noise and a lot of emotion that drives markets in the short term. And you really cannot find any sort of reliable way to make these shorter term predictions, whether it's valuation based, which is a lot of what we're going over today on the call and Christine Benz did, or there's some sort of like timing, you know, market technician based ways. There's no evidence that you can really predict what the market's going to do in the short term. People try it all the time. Clients would certainly appreciate if we could do it and we had that ability, but you just can't do it. It just doesn't work. So why blow the smoke? But if you can take a little bit longer viewpoint, these return expectations can positively influence the outcomes that you're going to have in your portfolio. And they're critical that you have realistic expectations going into your financial plan. If you're using historical returns of the US market doing you know, 10, 11%, like it's done throughout, you know, say the last hundred years or so, you're going to be sorely upset when you get into retirement and you're basing your spending patterns on a 10% return assumption and maybe you're getting something like half of that. That's not going to be a good situation to be in. So, you know, past is not prologue. You really do have to look under the hood a little bit and have some reasonable expectations about what you can spend. And this is going to change over time. U.S., you know, if you go back to 2009, the return expectations were really rosy. Why? Because the market just went down by about half. So this is continually evolving. It's dynamic. Things can happen. You know, where you know, emerging markets are very favorable. If they have a really good 10-year run, maybe even better than what some of these forecasts are, they may start looking expensive. So you need to do some of this constant trimming to your portfolio and go back to the kitchen and maybe come up with a different recipe about what's going to be best for you looking forward over that intermediate time frame. I have this image of you as like, a, I don't know, a baseball manager or general manager, and you're looking at the next year's draft class, and you're looking at their stats from their high school and college years and minor league times, and you're trying to construct your team for the next couple of years and trying to evaluate who's going to help where, what's going to be the best positions and ways to fill those needs, and you've got a limited amount of dollars that you can then spend on those players and on those skill sets, and you have to start deciding, do we want to pay you know, more for that all-star shortstop? and maybe give a little bit back from the right fielder? What about the pitching staff? How much do we want to commit there? And can we skimp on the catcher position a little bit if we've got good pitchers? And trying to kind of evaluate all those different things, I've got this image of you doing that here with all of these stocks each year, and not just stocks, but you know the markets as a whole, trying to figure out what's going to be the best thing. So how do you sort of take a look at all of these different prognostications out there and these, you know, well, you know, respected companies in the financial world and some of these great minds like, you know, Jack Bogle and and trying to figure out and read those tea leaves, not in the short term, but in the long term and develop the best allocation possible. I mean, how do you give one more weight to one who's saying there's going to be seven to eight percent versus some of these that are saying, you know, we're going to be in the doldrums for the next decade? And how do you arrive at your conclusion for your clients? We take a survey of about eight different ones that we're comfortable with their methodology. We understand it. And frankly, we'll compare them and, you know, hey, what, what's the average? Who are the outliers? What's kind of causing them to go that way? Frankly, right now, it's been a little bit easier over the last few years in the technical sense because 
all of these companies have a similar ranking. Again, it's you know, at least on the stock side, it's emerging markets, it's international developed, and then it's US. And that's been like that for several years. Now, like I said, in practice, that really hasn't been the place to be because the US has been disproportionately better on average over the last few years. But whenever you see that, hey, you know, these companies that have good methodologies to make these expected return forecasts are all aligning and they're all saying that certainly the numbers may vary, but if the rankings are similar, then that certainly gives us more conviction about overweighting something like emerging markets than if that weren't the case. Now, what to use in terms of return assumptions, then you know, typically we'll go more towards the average there and uh, maybe throw out some outliers. And certainly we don't you don't want to be when you're doing retirement plan projections for somebody and telling them that, hey, they, they don't have to go back to work. You don't want to screw that one up, right? So you don't want to have to tell them that you you have to go back to work uh, or you have to you know, spend a lot less money than what we thought you were going to have to spend. And you don't want to do that. So you don't want to lead with a chin here, but you want to be reasonable for sure. And frankly, if you have a good planning process and you have those goals that are really in the needs bucket, but some that are more discretionary or in the wish bucket, then you got to make sure that everything that is in the needs bucket is certainly going to be funded regardless of what the investment markets may deliver to us. That's really how we go through it. It's something that we do. Literally, we have uh, meetings every month. Um, now the expected returns, you know, some firms will update those quarterly. Actually, I think one does it monthly, but generally that is a little bit of less frequent. As long as you're doing that once a year, then you should be okay. But the most difficult part is not really that technical part that I just described. It's really keeping people disciplined. And, uh, you know, you look at the short term returns of the U.S. market and saying, hey, you know, the U.S. has done really well. We should really start, you know, owning less of the U.S. and going outside. And then you start doing that. And then, you know, the U.S. market still is kind of a better place to be. You know, all these companies, the BlackRocks, the JP Morgans, the GMOs, you know, they were all wrong. But Again, you can't predict the short term. You know, twelve months is not you know it's not a long term. Three years, frankly, is not a long term. So it takes a lot of discipline. If we have a client that really understands the the process and the methodology and we've earned trust in that relationship, then it's easier to keep them disciplined. Frankly, I mean, if you start working with a new client and you you get off on the wrong foot, which it's going to happen. I mean, if you're in business long enough, you know, even if you have the best process and the best thinking in the world, some weird things can happen in the investment markets in the short term. Then pragmatically, it's more difficult because you haven't had that long-term track record and a lot of positive experience and build up that relationship. So I think it's when you look at most financial advisors, if the relationships tend to be you know, very long-term, but if there is a relationship that's lost, the actual research shows that typically it's lost in like the first 12 or 24 months. And I would speculate that it's probably because the investment markets went a different way, even though the philosophy and the methodology could have been very sound. It's just that, you know, the clients didn't understand or, you know, not enough trust was built up. So you can have the greatest portfolio in the world, but if the clients can't stick with it, it doesn't do any good. But if there's one thing that anybody that's listening to this should take away from today is, you know, one or three years is not the long term. So there's the process is really going to drive the results over time. And I know that could be difficult when you're paying somebody for advice and you're not seeing really good returns or what you perceive as good returns, but they should be able to explain it to you what's going on, what the reasoning is. And if you understand the underlying philosophy and it makes sense, then a lot of times you just need to have the patience for it to work. 
So, Kevin, let's say that I'm listening to the program today, and as fascinating as this is to you and I, you know, kind of this high-level stuff and looking at, you know, these different conversations about expected returns and, you know, the 0.8% versus the 0.7, we get a kick out of that kind of stuff. What if I don't? And I'm and I'm thinking about, you know, working with a financial advisor, maybe working with your team and want to learn more about this and get a good financial plan in place, but my brain just doesn't have the capacity to dive in or the will to learn about all these little moving parts. So what does the conversation look like from kind of taking it from this high level financial advisor point of view to the everyday planning process? Sure. Well, I guess what I would say is, honestly, in my experience, not most financial advisors don't get into this level uh, either. So I probably owe an apology to all the listeners. Hopefully I didn't get too, too far down the rabbit hole. But again, you need to have these expected return assumptions and then have some pretty decent ones at that to factor into your planning. You know, it's going to factor into when you can retire, how much you can afford to spend, what have you. And it's also going to go ahead and influence the recipe for your portfolio. So if what we talked about today makes sense to you, you want to learn more about it, you're not doing this work and maybe you're kind of handling things yourself, but you do need some more guidance. You're not sure if you're, you know, if your recipe is really the right recipe. And we didn't even talk about sourcing ingredients, which is a whole other ball of wax. Or if, you know, you're, you're going down a path and you just need a second opinion and maybe the advisor that you're currently working with, you're not sure if he or she is really kind of taking uh, an approach like this, a very deliberate and thoughtful approach into your planning, or maybe you're just getting sold some investments or insurance products. We'd be happy to talk with you if you just go to our website at truewealthdesign.com. It's truewealthdesign.com. There's a little button there that says request a 15 minute call. So actually it says, are we right for you? And which then goes into, you can go ahead and request a 15 minute call. And we currently have four certified financial planners and one CPA on staff. And one of us would be happy to talk with you and see if there might be a good fit to go ahead and get together and uh, explore a relationship and give you some of the information that you're looking for so you can make a smarter decision about your planning for today and ensure you're gonna be okay for tomorrow. Hey, we call the show Retire Smarter, and I feel like I added a few IQ points today to the ledger, thanks to you, Kevin. So I do appreciate the high-level approach sometimes. I think it's important. We shouldn't shy away from getting informed, getting more information, getting educated, and sometimes challenging ourselves to try and absorb and learn a little bit more about kind of what's going on out there. It is, you know, if we're talking about working with you, it's our money after all, and so we should know as much as possible about what goes into these different decisions behind the scenes, and I found it very helpful. Again, 855-TWD-PLAN is the number to call if you've got questions for Kevin about anything we've talked about on today's show, or if you have suggestions of uh, maybe a podcast you'd like to hear about in the future, a particular subject you'd like to hear discussed. We're open to those suggestions, of course. 855-TWD-PLAN is the number, or go to truewealthdesign.com to find out more, listen to past episodes of the podcast, subscribe, and contact us all through the site there, truewealthdesign.com. Kevin, thanks for all the help, and uh, we'll look forward to another great podcast next week. Thank you, Walter. Appreciate it. Much appreciated. That's Kevin Krosky. I'm Walter Storholt. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next time on Retire Smarter. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.